0: You are listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 39. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today in the show, we're talking with the director of the American Kestrel Partnership, Chris McClure. Chris is a fellow Boise resident and I was fortunate enough to work with him on the research project that brought him to Boise, the Phantom Road Research. This widely publicized research proved that road noise has negative impacts on migrating birds. You can see Chris in our Phantom Road video, and you can hear his collaborators in episodes 32 and 37 of the podcast talking about this project in great detail. But today, we'll be focusing on the American Kestrel and Chris's new role as the director of this continent-wide citizen science-based project, the American Kestrel Partnership. We'll also be introducing a fascinating new research project on the American kestrel, one that holds the potential to finally determine the cause or causes behind kestrel population declines. For those of you who listened to last week's interview with UCLA researcher Kristen Ruig, you'll recognize the mention of the bird genoscape project in here. Yes, this is the same new genetic mapping technique that we discussed last week, and over the course of the next three weeks, we'll be hearing from a variety of biologists who are all working with this same species, our smallest falcon, the American kestrel. You'll also notice that we've released a new short film about this exciting new kestrel research project. So be sure to check out the show notes page for this episode where you can watch this new video and find links to learn more about the Peregrine Fund's American Kestrel Partnership. Those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org slash EOC39. Now let's jump into this interview. All right, I'm here with Chris McClure, who is the director of the American Kestrel Partnership, which is a project of the Peregrine Fund. How you doing, Chris? Good. Thanks for having me in. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for coming in and uh, being a part of the podcast here. Um, so I, I want to start off just by having you explain what the American Kestrel Partnership is. What is this project?
1: Yeah, I get that question a lot, actually. <laughs> uh, so we are a partnership of both citizen and professional scientists that um, are collecting data and analyzing data, trying to figure out why uh, populations of the American Kestrel are falling across most of North America.
0: Gotcha. So, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing the impetus for this project was
1: sort of the, a desire to, to figure out what's going on with with kestrel populations across North America. Is that correct? Yeah. So populations have been falling since at least the 1960s, and no one's been able to figure out why. And, and the Peregrine Fund finally decided that we need to really throw our weight behind this and, and figure out what's going on. Gotcha. So, I mean, the ultimate
0: goal of this project would be to just sort of uncover this mystery, right?
1: Yeah, uh, figure out what's going on. And then, you know, of course, if we can do something about it and maybe even reverse the declines eventually or at least help things level out.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so uh, the the American Capital Partnership, this is a project of the Peregrine Fund, as I mentioned at the outset. Um, maybe I guess I'm wondering if you can put sort of this project uh, into context, you know, uh, into the context of the larger mission um, of the Peregrine Fund.
1: Sure. Well, the, uh, the peregrine fund goes to work when birds of prey are, when their populations are in trouble. And so this could be anything from, uh, the peregrine falcon when it was endangered and really needed intense help or something like the American kestrel that's still relatively abundant, but it's been declining for decades and we can't just let the declines keep happening. Uh, so with the kestrel, we're trying to keep this species common. Uh, so we, we really go to work when, uh, one when other other folks aren't willing to uh, to go to work on this species, and uh, there have been some really good professors uh, and uh, you know government agencies working on this, but it hasn't really been at a continental scale. And so the Peregrine Fund decided that we needed to take this on and uh, make this our mission to figure out what's going on.
0: This new project, the American Kestrel Partnership, um, it it it's taken a, a really interesting citizen science-based approach, as you mentioned at the outset, towards uh, sort of uncovering this mystery and then also taking that next step of figuring out how to recover these populations. Um, I guess I'm looking for an explanation of how this this works. You know, how are you involving citizen science into this research and getting good data out of that that will help in achieving this goal?
1: Yeah, well, so I guess... I should mention that there are are several ways that a population can decline, and one of the ways is if, you know, they're having reproductive failure. So if they're not breeding at a rate high enough to replace themselves. And so the way uh, that we're trying to figure out if kestrel declines are because of this reproductive failure is through the Citizen Science nest box program. So folks across the country are putting up nest boxes, and they register the boxes on our website, which is kestrel.peregrinefund.org. And... They check the boxes throughout the summer, and then they log back in onto our website and, and give us their data. And hopefully we can use those data to figure out, you know, if kestrels are declining because of some sort of reproductive failure.
0: So, I mean, it seems to me, I, I guess sort of, the you know, the next step beyond sort of gathering this data from citizen science, uh, citizen scientists um, through this nest box program. Um, I mean, I guess I'm wondering if the fact that we're putting, you know, that we're, uh, you're having citizen science put up all these nest boxes, I mean, you're creating nesting habitat for the species, right? I mean, are you hoping that this will have an impact in the recovery effort as well?
1: Well, that's actually kind of up uh, to debate. There's certainly in areas where cavities are limiting, but there's pretty good evidence that in most areas, cavities aren't limiting for the species. So there's a lot of nest box programs that have been up out there for decades. And what they're saying is occupancy is declining, Uh, which means that there are open cavities there. The birds just aren't around to take them. So in certain areas, yeah, if there are no cavities around, you are creating habitat for a kestrel. But if it seems like, one, that's probably not the reason for the decline uh, in most areas. And two, it seems like cavities aren't in in demand in most of these areas.
0: Gotcha. But, I mean, you bring up this interesting point, right, which is that there's – you know, this is a species that's very widespread, is mm-hmm. found pretty much all across North America. Um, and there might be different factors impacting different populations in different parts of the con- uh, North
1: America, right? Yeah, totally. So uh, one of the, the hypotheses that I hear the most is that it's Cooper's hawk predation causing kestrel decline. So uh, for those that don't know, Cooper's hawks have been making a comeback in recent years, especially in the eastern United States. And one of the ideas is that these Cooper hawks are eating these juvenile American kestrels the second they leave the box. Uh, that, that's been sort of tested range-wide looking at Christmas bird count and uh, uh, breeding bird survey data, and there doesn't seem to be any correlation between the trend of the two species. Uh, and in areas like the Yukon, where there are no Cooper's hawks, uh, kestrels are still declining. Mm. But that doesn't mean that in areas like the northeast U.S. where, you know, there's a ton of Cooper's hogs now where there used to not be and there's barely any Kestrels anymore. That, you know, Cooper's hawks can't be exas- exacerbating uh, the problem and, uh, you know, that maybe in that area they're a problem. Whereas, you know, in the Yukon, it's something else going on. So it could be it could be a really messy situation where Kestrels are are declining for different re- reasons in different areas.
0: Gotcha. So this kind of brings up uh, what seems to me like a really critical component of this project, of the American Kestrel Partnership, which is the importance of these collaborative relationships that mm-hmm. you're establishing. I mean, both with, I mean, you've talked about these collaborative relationships that um, have been, uh, that you've been establishing with citizen scientists all across North America, um, but I imagine collaborative relationships with other researchers looking at. Kestrels is, is also really important and other organizations that are involved in, in this issue.
1: Yeah, that's uh, some of the most interesting things we're doing is partnering up with other professional scientists that have been running nest box programs for decades. And uh, one of the real cool things we're doing is we're getting uh, these different nest box programs from across the country and we're comparing the demography of these programs uh, between each other. And so we can say, well, in these declining populations – uh, reproductive rate is very low, whereas across all of these sites, you know, survival seems to be about the same. So at least in these declining sites, it seems like it's reproductive failure. Uh, so we can actually, you know, compare across growing and, and declining populations to try to figure out what, you know, vital rates or demographic rates are being depressed and causing these population declines.
0: How long has this project been going on, um, the American Kestrel Partnership? How, how long have... The peregrine Fund been working on this.
1: Yeah, so we started in 2012. Okay, so we're we're actually a pretty new program.
0: Gotcha. So I guess I'm curious to hear about what what that process was like as far as um, bringing all of these uh, Kestrel researchers on board, right? And also reaching out to all these citizen scientists. Um, I mean, you're trying to uh, you're trying to answer answer this very big picture question. You know, what's happening to the species? all across the continent um i mean what was it like trying to you know bringing all those folks on board and i mean are are, are, are you still working on on that still trying to sort of bring folks into the fold yes
1: yeah, so we're definitely uh still trying to recruit more citizen scientists you know get people into uh kestrel conservation and you know uh science in general um we still to so, Last year at the raptor research meeting, we had a symposium on kestrel ecology where, you know, professional uh, and aspiring uh, kestrel biologists came from across the country to discuss kestrel declines and kestrel ecology and how we can work together to figure out what's going on. Uh, In 2012, when we first started everything, I actually wasn't there, uh, but the founding director put together a big kestrel conference up uh, at the Peregrine Funds World Center for Birds of Prey and invited kestrel research from researchers from all across the Western Hemisphere to get together and figure out what's going on and figure out how everyone's going to collaborate on these efforts. And and uh, the founding director put a lot of work into uh, also establishing the citizen science program. So there's actually a lot of amateur nest box programs around the country, and he did a great job recruiting them and, and sort of putting all of these data into one database to figure out what's going on with the reproduction of the American kestrel.
0: Um, I mean, what, what have you been able to sort of learn uh, thus far?
1: One of the great things we learned is uh, there's so many kestrel nest boxes already out there. So usually, you know, we don't have to ask people to put up nest boxes. It's just, if you've already got one register and, and let us know what's going on with it. So there's, you know, we've got thousands of nest boxes across the country now that we didn't ask people to put up. People had just already had up and that's, it's pretty cool to see that many people were already into kestrels, and now we can galvanize that, that group and, you know, and show them the plight of the American kestrel and how they can help in figuring out what's going on. Uh, some of the actual, you know, data-related things, it seems like the reproductive success of the American kestrel is pretty high across most of the country, which would suggest that it's not reproductive failure that's the cause of declines, at least in most areas and some of the demographic modeling that we've been doing, like I mentioned, comparing the different sites. We've got some preliminary results in, and it it seems you know the, the population growth rate of the American kestrel is less sensitive to changes in reproduction than it is in things like adult survival, which is what you would expect with any raptor, but it's nice to show it uh, scientifically, I guess.
0: Sure, sure. So I, I want to sort of jump into this new kestrel research initiative that the american kestrel partnership has has launched in collaboration with boise state university and hawk watch international and ucla um i I mean it seems to me like this is a, a very logical extension of the work that The American Kestrel Partnership has already done as far Mm -hmm. as reaching out to collaborators and trying to come up with new strategies for figuring out this big picture question of what's happening to Kestrel populations. But maybe you could just introduce folks to this new initiative.
1: Yeah, this is definitely one of the more exciting things that I've ever done in my uh, short career so far. Um, So it kind of goes back to, you know, there are certain ways that a population can decline. We've got the breeding season kind of covered. But now uh, there's this sort of gaping hole in our knowledge of American kestrels, and that's where are they going in the winter and what threats are they facing, both along migratory routes and wintering grounds. So uh, some of the long-term nest box programs that I've mentioned, like in Hog Mountain, Pennsylvania, they've had declining occupancy for years, but reproductive, uh, the reproductive rate has stayed relatively stable. And so it, it seems that these birds are just leaving during the winter, and a few of them are coming back every year. And we aren't really sure where they're going. Uh, Technology isn't good enough yet to put one of those, you know, really fancy satellite transmitters on a kestrel. They're too small of a bird to handle such a bulky transmitter. Uh, So we figured our workaround would be this new uh, genetic technique that uh, Kristen Rueg at UCLA has been really great at pioneering and is now willing to help us uh, do this with kestrels. So uh, we've partnered up with Boise State and Hawkwatch, like you mentioned, uh, and then, of course, Kristen at UCLA. And what we can do is we can you know, basically take the DNA from birds across the breeding grounds and figure out where the different subpopulations are uh, during the breeding season. Then, uh, either at a migratory stopover site or maybe on the wintering grounds, all we have to do is pull a feather from that bird and we can figure out where it was born or at least which population it was born into. And so then we can ask things like, well, if we know the... Population that breeds in New England is falling the fastest. We can look and see, well, where are they migrating through and where are they spending the winter? And then we can go there and see if th- that population is facing any unique threats that's uh, making that population fall faster than others.
0: I mean, you mentioned that this is like a really exciting th- thing yeah. for you as a scientist. I mean, is this like cutting edge stuff? I mean, you know, wh- where did this technique come from?
1: Yeah, so this really it uh, came of... Of age in the past couple years, actually, um, and like I mentioned, Kristen's really the, uh, the main person that's been pioneering this thing, and so it's it's pretty cutting edge, and it's only been done for just a few species, um, but we're hoping that it, it's going to help us uncover the migratory connectivity of the American kestrel and let us know, you know, where these birds are spending the winter. Mm-hmm.
0: And so it seems to me like the first step, right, before you can sort of use this strategy to, you know, sort of tease out some of this specific information about certain populations. Um, I mean, you'd have to build a map, right? You'd Mm -hmm. have to know sort of the, uh, what the genetic markers are for each individual population of of American Kestrel all across the continent, right? Yeah. So there's a big sort of effort that has to take place before you can sort of use it to figure out what's happening with Kestrel populations.
1: Yeah. And so we've already, uh, so to create that breeding grounds map, you have to you know, take blood uh, blood samples from kestrels in all of these areas where you think the, the uh, subpopulations might be a little bit different. And so uh, we've actually collected most of the blood for that uh, initial map. Uh, we've got it from you know, several areas across you know, the United States, Canada, and even Alaska. And uh, so we're going to be you know, genotyping those, the birds from those different areas, and hopefully we can map out where the different populations are. So the first
0: step is to create this this basically like a genetic map for mm-hmm. the species, right? Yeah. Um, and you said that <clears throat> a lot of that work has already been done, right? Um, well, the
1: field work, none of the you know genetics have been analyzed. Okay, I gotcha. So that's the, honestly the easy part is just calling up your friends and getting them to you know send you the blood samples. <laughs> okay. uh, now we've got to actually do you know the the lab coat work and, uh, you know, run these samples through the fancy machines and the pipettes and, gotcha. and all that stuff. Gotcha.
0: And then once that sort of lab work is done and this genetic map for kestrel populations has been created, what would that next
1: step be? So once we have the map figured out, uh, then, uh, like I said, all we'll need is a feather pulled from a bird from any location and we'll we'll know which breeding population it's from. And so this is really where uh, the folks at Hawk Watch come and play a huge part is that, you know, they're trapping these hawks across the country, right? Or at least across the Western United States. And, uh, you know, so when when a kestrel flies into one of their traps, they just pull one of the feathers and we have a sample and we'll be able to figure out where it's coming through. So they, they'll they be able to figure out where the birds coming through their trap sites uh, were actually born. And that, that's going to be pretty cool information for them and for us. Uh, because they'll know which populations they sample at their uh, trap sites, and we'll know what the migratory connectivity of those populations is.
0: Right, so they can sort of take those feather samples and then analyze it, compare it to this existing genetic map, and then they can figure out, like, oh, hey, this year we're getting more kestrels or fewer kestrels coming from this particular breeding population. Um, And they'll know that even though they're not actually trapping them, at their breeding location, exactly, right? yeah,
1: and they'll even be able to say, "Well, this population comes through early in the migration season, and then this population comes through later." Mm-hmm. So they they can even look at like the phenology or like the seasonal differences between different populations in different areas or different latitudes, different mm-hmm. you know, even uh, I don't know uh, bird conservation areas, mm-hmm. physiographic regions, things like that.
0: Sure, sure. And then that next step would be figuring out like which populations. Need the most help, right? Which populations are declining um, at sort of the most alarming rate, um, and 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 then sort of figuring out what you know what can be done to, to address that.
1: Exactly. So if you know if all the populations that are declining really fast go through this one migratory corridor, well, we need to check out that corridor and see if there's something special going on there that's affecting kestrel survival. Mm-hmm.
0: So, what about the wintering grounds for kestrels? Um, I mean, we're creating this map. I mean, this is this is like a breeding grounds map, right? So we can track the birds back. I mean, does it work both ways?
1: Yeah, so we're also planning, in addition to the, you know, uh, Hawk Watch trapping sites for migration, we're also going to, you know, go down uh, to uh, so- the southern U.S., Mexico, uh, the Caribbean, things like that, and sample the birds down there. And so, you know, we can just catch a bird, pull its feather, and figure out, you know, where it came from, or at least where it was born, hopefully. Uh, And so we'll have this basically year-long picture of American kestrel distribution. We'll know uh, where the birds were born during the breeding season, where they migrate through, and where they spend the winter. And hopefully that'll give us a a good enough uh, picture of where the birds are going through that we can figure out, you know, if certain populations are facing certain threats uh, in certain areas. You
0: you used an example of, you know, kestrel populations in the Northeast and, you know, some of the ideas of what might be impacting those kestrel populations, but how, you know, the big question is where they go to spend the winter. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, is that going to have to sort of be trial and error sort of figuring out, you know, I mean, can you you take a blood sample and figure out where they're wintering
1: or you have to or it only works in the opposite way, right? It, uh, we're doing it in the opposite way. So we okay. figure out the breeding season map first. Mm-hmm. And then so everything becomes in reference to that breeding season map. Gotcha. And so when we pull a feather from a bird in the wintering grounds, we're basically going to place it into the breeding season map gotcha. uh, as to where it was born. Right. Right. Okay.
0: And then eventually, you know, once you get enough samples, you'll have a pretty complete picture of you know where all these different populations are going and, we hope so yeah yeah
1: um kestrel biology is pretty messy though so not not all populations migrate and some only migrate during bad winters or and and so it's it's a pretty messy uh undertaking i think so uh like the the kestrels here in boise some migrate south some don't so it's 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 going to be really fascinating to look at the genetics and how that all pans out between, you know, non-migratory populations versus migratory ones and and the ones that migrate even farther than other populations and things like that.
0: Right, and I imagine a lot of that stuff is going to be changing as Climate change sort of has an impact on all of these ecosystems. You know, may- maybe fewer individuals from some of these populations will start migrating as winters become
1: warmer. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so as winters have gotten warmer, um, the birds don't migrate as much and they don't migrate as far. Mm. And so um, actually, Neil Paprocki, who's now at Hawk Watch when he was at Boise State, um, he was looking at how Kestrel's, the Kestrel's winter distribution has actually shifted northward a little bit. And uh, because some of these populations aren't migrating anymore, that means they're on the breeding grounds earlier and so they can breed earlier. So actually the Kestrel's breeding date has moved, has shifted earlier uh, for uh, at least the population here in Boise and probably elsewhere.
0: Hmm. I mean, that, that to me, that makes it seem like there's um, – I mean, you're almost like fighting against time here, right? I mean, to get this map in place and to figure out what's happening – now you know, at the current state as fast as possible so that, you know, you can understand um, what's happening as these changes start to take place, right?
1: Yeah, When, well, like I mentioned, Hawkwatch is going to be able to figure out when populations are coming through relative to each other. Mm-hmm. And we'll be able to, you know, if, if they're taking these feathers year after year, figure out, you know, if there's a shift in the timing for each of these populations.
0: Mm-hmm. What has to happen to get this project up off the ground?
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, much like anything in science, we need money to do it. Right. (laughs) Um, So and and really for a project of this scope, it's we don't need that much money to get it off the ground. Uh, You know, these genetic sampling techniques are getting cheaper and cheaper as, you know, technology moves forward. And uh, like I mentioned, we've got the world expert in this, uh, Kristen Rueg who's who's helping us out so i i think with this partnership that we've put together we can actually do a great job at a fairly decent cost
0: Uh, the american castor partnership um you know along with you know uh, working with um it's it's partner organizations in this project Hawkwatch international and boise state and ucla um has just launched this crowdsource funding campaign i mean is that sort of like seed money like the initial money that you need to sort of get this project up and going
1: yeah, so this, this money will go towards analyzing those blood samples and creating that initial breeding grounds map. And that's really where most of the hard work is, is you know, analyzing the blood and, and building this map. And once we've got that set, the rest of it will sort of fall into place.
0: How can folks uh,
1: learn more about this and get involved? I've been getting really into, you know, citizen science lately and, and getting folks involved into the scientific process. And so I think we're going to have a crowdsourcing campaign. I think this is a great way uh, for, for folks to you know, get involved in science, get involved in conservation issues that they really care about. And so people are always coming up to me or emailing me and saying, I don't really have the time to put up a Kestrel box, but I still want to help out. What can I do? And I think, This sort of crowdsourcing campaign is a great way for folks to, uh, help us figure out what's going on with kestrels, get involved in science, and really, you know, actively do something to help the American kestrel and just raptors in general. Uh, this is, and, and getting, get involved with what I think is a really cutting edge project that's going to be impactful.
0: Awesome. So where can folks go to learn about this campaign and, you know, make a pledge or share it with their friends?
1: Yeah. So you can uh, check out kestrel.peregrinefund.org. That's the website for the American Kestrel Partnership. But you can also check out our Facebook page, our Twitter feed, uh, and, of course, the Peregrine Fund's website and the Peregrine Fund's social media is uh, buzz about it right now.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. And we'll certainly have links to that campaign um, on the show notes for this episode as well. So you can find that there. Um, You know, we've talked about folks out there putting up nest boxes and sort of actively participating in the research in that way. Um, And now there's also this way for folks to sort of, you know, directly contribute to um, sort of this next step of Kestrel research and, you know, this sort of big project to figure out what's happening on a continent wide scale. Um, is there anything else you can
1: point to? Uh, so many folks don't know that the, the Treasure Valley here around Boise is home to one of the longest-running kestrel nest box programs in the world. It's uh, it's been run by uh, Karen Steenhoff at USGS and now Julie Heath at BSU. And so you know, folks in the Treasure Valley. Uh, you know, often want to put up a nest box, uh, but we don't really need more nest boxes here in the Treasure Valley. It's kind of saturated right now. Right. So, uh, you know, instead we, uh, we created this Adopt-a-Box program. And so, you know, people adopt one of Julie Heath's nest boxes and we send them updates on, you know, how many eggs there are, uh, how many hatched. Uh, and it, it's a way that people in the Treasure Valley can directly get involved with kestrel research and, and conservation.
0: Awesome. That's fantastic. Um, And and that's a really important point to make, right, is that it's, you know, throwing a nest box up in the area where you happen to live. I mean, depending on where you are, that's not necessarily the best way to help American kestrels, right?
1: Yeah, especially if there's already a long-term nest box program, you don't want to put up a box and then, you know, that box takes one of the birds away from the long-term program and suddenly... Their occupancy's dropped a little bit, and they don't know why. Well, it's because all these new boxes are popping up and kestrels are going elsewhere.
0: Right. So So it could actually be having an impact on this long-running study and, you know, sort of maybe even negatively impacting the data that they're collecting.
1: Right. So, you know, when we ask when people put up a box to sort of check around uh, with local Audubon societies and local universities to see if there's already an S-Box program that they could get involved with. Uh, And, you know, if they do put up a box, that might be great as long as the folks running the already existing program know um, and can come check your box and things like that.
0: Um, Well, yeah, I mean, it sounds like we've got some really awesome sort of uh, starting points for folks who want to get involved in this uh, really interesting and exciting Kestrel research. I mean, step one is to definitely go check out the crowdsource campaign for this new research, you know, make a pledge, even if it's just a small amount, you know, these crowdsource campaigns, you know, I tell everybody this for all that we've run a couple of crowdsource campaigns for a couple of the documentaries that, that we've produced. And, you know, I, it's really important to stress that, you know, it's about sort of building a movement around this project. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, you know, so those small contributions really do make a difference. Oh, yeah. So even if you don't have, you know, a 100 bucks to throw around, um, just a few bucks, you know, is going to make a difference, just a few dollars. Um, and, and you know, share that campaign around with folks, you know, who you think might have a, a specific Absolutely. interest in, yeah. in what's going on with kestrel populations. And then if you want to take that next step, be an even more active participant in this project, um, and, you know, you're thinking about maybe putting up a nest box, you know, do, do a little bit of research first. You know, reach out to uh, your local Audubon chapter um, and uh, uh, see what the situation is, you know. Um, or, you know, if you live in the Treasure Valley, uh, check out the Peregrine Fund's Adopt a Nest Box program. That sounds like a really cool way to sort of get involved, um, even though there's not a need for additional nest boxes in this area. Before we wrap things up here, Chris, I just I guess I want to get a sense from you about the long term potential that you think this new type of genetic research holds, Um, you know, both for kestrels, but also for for other species. I mean, does this have the potential to change the way that we approach research on birds of prey?
1: Uh, I think it certainly does, and that's uh when I talk to the folks at Hawk Watch international, they're really excited about doing this not just for kestrels but other uh birds of prey species so they at their you know trap sites they aren't just catching kestrels, they're catching you know all the most of the migratory raptors in North America and so everything that we're doing with kestrels we can do with any other species so they'll be able to figure out you know when red tails are coming through when broad hawks are coming through and they can look at the different uh, you know where they're coming through, when they're coming through the hawk trap sites, and where they're spending the winter. So uh, the potential for this is really for any species. It's not just for American kestrels.
0: Cool. Well thanks a lot for taking the time to chat with us and come thanks on for the show. Me. Um, and one last time, you know, for for folks who are looking to get involved in this exciting new research, um, check out kestrel.peregrinefund.org. That's right. Um, and you can find the link to that crowdsource campaign and get involved. Yep. Um, and yeah, thanks again, Chris. Thanks a lot. All right. That was our interview with Chris McClure, director of the American Kestrel Partnership. This conversation really puts last week's interview with Kristen Ruig into an interesting new context. By looking closely at the American kestrel, we learn how significant these gaps are in our understanding of their basic natural history, and we start to understand why some of these questions about migration have been so difficult to answer up until now. We also see why Chris and others are so excited about this new technique for monitoring kestrels and other birds. Of course, Chris also mentioned the new crowdsource funding campaign that the Peregrine Fund has just launched to provide the money needed to sequence the kestrel's genome and build the genoscape map for this species. This is a really neat opportunity to become a part of this cutting-edge research, which is truly revolutionizing the way we gather data on and study birds. If you listen to any of our Vaquita-themed interviews or our interview with crowdsource funding expert Jamie Stegmeier, then you'll know how strongly I feel about supporting important crowdfunding campaigns like this. Not only does it bring you into an interesting new community of like-minded people, but if you ever hope to run a crowdfunding campaign of your own someday, you have to start participating in this process and be active in the crowdfunding community. So, you can check out this new crowdfunding campaign and become a part of this exciting new Kestrel research at kestrel.peregrinefund.org. Or you can follow the link on our show notes page, which you can find at wildlensinc.org EOC39. That's wildlensinc.org EOC39. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky, with assistance from the good people at Radio Boise. Our theme music is by The Humidors.